The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Fighting through episode 25. Sergeant Rufty Hill meets Winston. More great unpublished history. Here, how Sergeant Rufty Hill meets Winston Churchill. It's another photo story, and today's picture shows Rufty Hill, one of Dad's comrades, clowning about with friends in a photo booth in Limassol, Cyprus in 1941. And they've got one unexpected guest. tale goes back to the start of the war, how these lads met and what special connection brought them together. We'll hear some of the riveting actions these lads fought in, one of whom won the military medal. Sadly, tragedy was to befall some of them. Hello again, I'm Paul Chielson of Bill Cheel, whose World War II memoirs have been published by Pen and Sword in Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg. The aim of these podcasts is to give you the stories behind the story. You'll hear first-hand memoirs and memories of veterans connected to Dad's War in some way, and much more. Listener, I'd like to wish you a very warm welcome, whether you're returning or listening to the show for the first time. Either way, thank you very much for being here. I do appreciate it. For your listening convenience, there are lots of links to apps at the website, and once you're listening with an app, you'll normally get a notification when a new episode is out. So if you're a new listener and want to make things easier for yourself, go to the fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk website and click on one of the many links you can use to listen to the show. Today I'm continuing my series of photo stories. They're based on either my dad's memoir or on photographs or other memoirs I've been sent. You won't need to be looking at the photo whilst you're listening. Ideally, you can just take a quick shifty beforehand, either at my website or in the show notes local to your listening app. But there's really no need to see the photo. It's just that the pictures I'll be using will be particularly poignant or inspirational ones that I want to share with you purely for extra pleasure. Just a bit of feedback to share with you now. Many thanks to Crow, who posted some very nice comments on Podbean. Love the podcast. I feel like I'm deep in it with them all. Thank you. You know, listener, it's funny how this show's developed, and I do think... Cross comments ring true. I think it's rather nice how the show is evolving as you get to know some of the characters and the battles and stories. It's certainly worked like that for me personally and each new discovery it's like a little gem found on the beach. So I hope the memoirs keep coming in and we can make this expanding jigsaw even better. And in Apple Podcasts by Nicholas Rico from the UK 
a great personal perspective which leaves me in awe of what it must have been like for these gents. I hope to visit the Normandy beaches next summer or the year after that. I'm amazed at these men. Thanks very much, Nicholas, and if you do visit Normandy, nip to the show notes for this episode 25 and click on the link to my GPS coordinates for your sat-nav. You can't beat GPS for finding some of these war locations. Believe me, I found out the hard way by getting lost endless times. And to anyone contemplating a visit to the World War II battlegrounds in Europe, I can't recommend Google Earth highly enough. Locate a place with it and take a note of the GPS coordinates to feed into your sat-nav. And I've got one or two more bits of feedback. Many thanks to kind comments and five-star ratings from Sultan of SWAT 30 and Moa Luga from the USA. And a rather concerning comment, really, from John1028 from the UK. John said, Perfect WW2 ear fodder. It's midnight. I can't sleep. And this came up on a search on iTunes. Could be a long night, I fear, as I'm hooked from the first few minutes. (laughs) Not healthy, John. John added that if I'm ever in the UK West Country to get in touch, he volunteers at U Pottery and Dunkerswell Airfields in Devon and would gladly offer me a day's touring around their museums and aerodromes. You know, John, I've I've been looking up the uh, RAFU pottery in Wikipedia, and I've just stumbled upon the most exquisite reference to it that you could hope for. It's brought quite a lump to my throat. Uh, RAFU pottery is a former World War II airfield in East Devon, England. Opened in 1944, it was used by the Royal Air Force, the United States Army Air Forces and United States Navy. During the war, it was used primarily as a transport airfield and for anti-submarine patrols. U-Pottery received much attention in 2001 when it appeared in the first episode of the television miniseries Band of Brothers. It was from U Pottery that Easy Company of the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment, US 101st Airborne Division, boarded Douglas C-47 transports and made their first combat jump into Normandy on 6th June 1944. Well, listener, that gets my first How Good Is That award for 2018. Wow. Thanks for the kind invitation, John. I may be able to take you up on it sometime, as I do want to get down to the south coast near Southampton, Bournemouth and Plymouth, which featured so much in World War II. So if I do, I promise I'll try to get over to you. Maybe we can even record a show on the back of it. I'll leave it there, John. Do get in touch, but make sure you don't stay up all night listening to my podcasts. I've heard it can give you nightmares. Listener, I do want to get on with the show now, but I've got a bumper crop of extra material and PSs at the end. There's a My Relative Was In The War And He Said contribution from Tom Collins. And there's a couple of great postscripts you do not want to miss. So stay with me and don't switch off till the music starts. OK, on with the show. The original World War II photograph of Rufty and Pals was in black and white. 
I got it enhanced a few years ago and I've recently had it colourised by specialist Marina Amaral just for this show. If you're a connoisseur, it's not a high quality image, but I've done my best to enhance it and for me it's all about the quality of the story that goes with it. The photograph features Rufty Hill and some pals messing about in a photo studio in Limassol, Cyprus, around June 1941. We only know the names of two of the lads in this photo. There's Rufty himself back right, and his best pal Bill Vickers back left. Does anyone listening know who the other lads were? How good would that be? They're dressed in khaki, with huge great baggy trousers rolled up to their knees. There's a passage in Dad's book where he describes these very shorts when he gets to Egypt in 1942. The weather now was very hot. Very quickly we dumped our kit in a tent allocated to us and went to another tent where we were issued with khaki drill shirts and shorts to wear in place of our denims. If you could have seen those shorts, well, they were good for a laugh but they were cool in the scorching sun. They had a double buckle fastening at the waist and wide legs which reached almost to our knees. They must have been kept in stock since the Indian campaigns. Back to the photo, listener. They're all sporting wide grins and each of them is holding something daft. A bunch of flowers or a flute, an accordion and a toy dog. And there's a photograph of Winston Churchill on the floor in front of them. One of the great things about this photo is how the lads are happy to have Winston in the photo in front of them. I have to say, I can't think of any other world leader of today that would be entertained so willingly. The cynic in me wonders if the photo studio also had a photo of Adolf Hitler in the back room, just in case any German soldiers also walked in off the street some day. I know when Dad was stationed in Bruges in Belgium, 1945, just after he'd recovered from his Normandy injuries, he said in his memoirs, Photographers were on the streets doing brisk business among servicemen, making capital out of the fact that friendly forces had arrived in their midst. They were probably just as enthusiastic when the enemy were amongst them. After all, business is business. But I'll wager they fleeced the unsuspecting Germans. Listener, I don't think the enemy ever arrived at uh, Limassol, but if they did, then no doubt the tradesmen would have welcomed them. I just love this scene, and that's why I had it colourised. I know some people frown upon colourisation as like some sort of sacrilege to the art of old photography, but for me, if it's a special photo for some reason, then making it look as if the action just happened yesterday makes it all the more fascinating far more than with uh, black and white photographs and when I see a great picture in colour I just marvel at it I think you see detail you don't notice in black and white like hair colour, badges, clothing, all sorts there's a bit of a mystery over the photograph which I'd like to share with you now when I was researching the colours I have to thank the World War II Talk dot com forum for their help with some of the shades 
but the only real and very strange sticking point was some sort of straps or webbing which adorned the soldiers' shoulders, which took me ages to sort out. I initially thought it was um, unidentified equipment, then maybe just decorations slung over their bodies by the studio for fun. Um, I had to leave it a while so I could focus on other aspects of the photo. But then on the last lap of my investigation, I took a look through the other photos sent to me by Rufty's nephew, Mike Smith, and there are some beauties. Rufty was a real pin-up for the girls, I'd imagine. Such a good-looking lad. But I was looking for clues to the names of the other soldiers. Then suddenly, wham, it hit me right between the eyes. Staring out at me from my computer screen was a photo of a bunch of lads in a military band wearing that same strange webbing. And of course, Rufty himself was in that picture and it was identical to the other stuff. That put me on the right track, and I soon found out that the regalia is tasseled aiguillette, or aiguillettes, and usually made in worsted wool cord, so the long bits are aiguillette, and the bits at the ends are tassels. I had to make a judgement call on the colour, which just had to be green. Green Howard's infantry regiment, of course. Now I know the answer to all this, it's fairly obvious, but when the photo was in black and white, it was hard to see what things were. But the instrumentation of choice was clear in that earlier picture, because the lads are standing in front of a big pile of drums, and Rufty and one other are both wearing leather aprons over their left thighs. I can just imagine Rufty and his pals belting out some marching rhythm, and the troop in my dad's words stepping it out to them. I remember in Dad's memoir he was once on a really long and tiring route march and towards the end of it the army band turned up and played them all back into camp and Dad remarked upon how it lifted them all. I noticed Bill's holding a flute in the main photo so I just wonder if he played a trumpet in the band. Anyway, all of this means that these lads had a bond with each other not just from being comrades but from being in the Green Howard's regimental band. I would imagine they even had a connection through music before the war too. They must have taken their instruments with them to Limassol, because surely they wouldn't have taken their aiguillette unless they'd also taken the instruments. Anyway, all these photos are in the show notes at Fighting Through Podcast. .co.uk and there are some real crackers I don't think I've ever come across such a such a fine set of photos of a bunch of war comrades there's one of Rufty sitting in front of Bill and my goodness what a man mountain Rufty looks do take a quick look through the show notes listener these photos are great and you will not see them on any other website so remember you saw it and heard it on the fighting through podcast first Okay, over to the stories behind the photo. Limassol is in Cyprus, and in 1941 it was a defensive outpost that Britain was holding in anticipation of an enemy advance which never happened. The 50th Division was there in the early stages of the war to build a defensive works, and anyone who's listened to Wilf Shaw in episode 4 will have heard about how Wilf lost his gold ring, a 21st birthday present, whilst digging at Limassol. 
According to a book, The Deceivers, Allied Military Deception in the Second World War, in June 1941, Cyprus contained about 4,000 troops, which in fact were elements of the 50th Northumbrian Infantry Division, plus some local troops. They were designated as the fictitious 7th Division. These and other ruses, part of the Cyprus Defence Plan, convinced the enemy they were facing up to 30,000 troops. In mid-July 41, the rest of the 50th Division arrived. To keep up the deception, the genuine 50th Division and the fake 7th Division made up the 18th Corps. In November 41, the 50th was relieved by the 5th Infantry Division India. So Rufti and pals with Wilfshaw and his pals all moved on to Palestine and then Iraq for a few months. So although the war wasn't going on at this point and the troops were on a war footing, there wasn't actually any fighting being done. So I guess there were times when the soldiers were given leave to visit the town, hence the photograph. Mike Smith, Rufty's nephew, wrote in to me to say, My name's Mike Smith and I'm the son of Frieda Smith, who was Rufty's sister. Frieda died in 2010. I was born in 1954, so didn't know Alan, but there was a photograph of him on Mother's windowsill. Alan lived at Lingdale near Redcar and had several brothers and a sister. Listener, these are all now passed away, but there are descendants such as Mike himself and a cousin Maureen. Dad mentions Rufty several times in his memoir. He was killed tragically during the D-Day landings at Normandy on Gold Beach, whilst getting off the landing craft. As he was jumping off, he landed in a shell hole, and at the same time a wave caused the boat to surge forward on top of him to crush and drown him. Dad said he would have given a good account of himself if he'd survived. And in his book he said, It was awful to think that Rufty had survived Dunkirk, and from Alamein to Tunisia, then through Sicily, only to be killed in such a tragic way. Mike said, I never met Bill Vickers, but he was a name spoken about when I was a boy. I understand that he went back to look for Rufty after the landings on D-Day, but could not find him. Listen, remember these lads were in a band and fighting together. No wonder Bill Vickers went back to look for Rufty on the beaches. I can't begin to imagine the emotions he was experiencing when his pal went missing. I can picture the route off Gold Beach because I've been there. They would have walked off the sand past a tram shelter that Sergeant Major Stan Hollis, V.C., had shot up thinking it was a pillbox. Up the road alongside a landmark house with a circular drive, past some gun emplacements at Merville, all this just a few hundred yards up the road. I just wonder how far Bill got before he turned back. Would he have got permission from his officer, or from Sergeant Major Stan Hollis, V.C.? Would he have just said, sod it, and absconded? I don't know, but what a tragic scene it must have been. I think in reality Bill would only have been a few yards off the beach before he checked back for Rufty because they'd been told not to stop to help each other and there would have been too much else to do. Certainly going back would have been fraught with danger because it's likely the beaches would still have been under shell fire from the gun batteries until Stan Hollis played his brave part in silencing them. 
I went to Rufty's grave last year at Bayeux War Cemetery in France and paid my respects. I made a short video of it, so if you'd like to see it, take a look in the show notes. There are a few other videos I've taken too of Gold Beach and other scenes, so take a quick shifty. Rufty's recorded as being killed on 6th of June 1944, D-Day, aged 22. The inscription on his grave is, I've anchored my soul in the haven of rest. In Jesus I'm safe evermore. I can't think of a better tribute to Rufty than the one Dad paid him in his book. Rufty would have given a very good account of himself had he lived to go into the assault. He was a great scrapper and a good, tough soldier. It was a very sad loss to us all, as he'd always been a young man so full of energy, well known in the battalion and very popular with everybody. Nothing was too much trouble for him. He was one of the lads. Listener, I'm now going over to Bill Vickers' story. Bill Vickers was Rufty's best mate. This first-hand account is taken from Bill Vickers, speaking to author Barry Barnes, who's written a book called Operation Scipio. It's all about the Battle of Wadi Akras on 6th of March 1943. It's a fabulous book, and there's a link to it in the show notes, along with some great photos of Rufty that his nephew Mike sent in. There's actually a section on Dad in it. He was interviewed by Barry years ago, but this episode isn't about Dad, it's about Rufty and his pals, who would all have been on first-name terms with Stan Hollis VC, who distinguished himself on D-Day. What an incestuous show this is becoming. Sorry, I, I just had to pause to contemplate for a moment. I just wonder what these veterans would make of all these stories coming out which connect them after all these years, if they were still alive today. It's almost becoming a British band of brothers. And I'm in total awe of Barry Barnes being able to interview all these veterans those many years ago, and it makes me feel kind of humble. I've interviewed just two veterans for this show, and that's been a privilege, but he's interviewed scores and he's still producing books based on many years of research. He's got another one coming out in 2018 called The 50th at Bay, The Years of Defeat, which is a history of the 50th Division, 1939-42, when the British Army was firmly on its back foot. And I think anyone reading that might just gain an insight into the source of the brave resolve shown by the 50th Division to jump off those landing craft and get up the beach on D-Day to avenge their fallen pals. I've put a link in the show notes for anybody interested in Barry's book or any other books I've mentioned. So, Bill Vickers and Wadi Akaris, which is in Tunisia, North Africa, Dad was in this battle and so were Wilf Shaw and Brian Moss. Episode 2 gives you more background and first-hand accounts of this brutal battle. But essentially the troops had to walk across a flat plain under heavy shelling, then take a small hill, point eighty-five, before crossing an anti-tank ditch to access the hills where most of the enemy were waiting. Here's Bill Vickers' story. 17 Platoon D Company, the 6th Green Howards, 6th of March 1943. We got along the top of the wadi, a dried up riverbed, and our platoon was well forward. 
Our section was led by Sergeant William Allen Hill, who was my best mate. Rufty was his nickname. We came onto a German Spandau machine gun post and took all the crew prisoner in their slip trench. They were all Africa Corps men, and one of the lads took them back the way we'd come. The rest of us got into the slit trench. Below us in the wadi was a piece of high ground that could best be described as an island. On it was a 50mm anti-aircraft gun and an anti-tank gun. We opened fire on the crews with the captured German machine gun and my Bren gun, killing or wounding both crews. The anti-tank gun had a clear view of the entrance to the wadi, and I believe it was this gun that was responsible for the two knocked-out tanks standing motionless at the entrance. On one, an officer was hanging out of the turret, with his entrails blown out. His sergeant was dead on his hands and knees, being killed by the blast. Someone on the island fired at us, and I was hit on the left front of my steel helmet by a tracer bullet, which dented my helmet. While we were in the slit trench, a couple of vehicles came up to the island with ammunition for the guns, and they were unaware we'd got so far out into the wadi. We took the drivers prisoner, and our men drove the vehicles out. Our section opened fire on the island to give covering fire to our mates, as they went into more covered slit trenches taking more prisoners. From our position we could see the 51st Highland Division on the slopes of the high ground to our right. The enemy started to shell and mortar them, and they took cover. Our fighter bombers roared over us and strafed and bombed the enemy on the open ground beyond the wadi. At the same time, 25-pounder shells from our own artillery were flying over us and landing on the open ground. Our D Company moved forward and out of the protection of the wadi. The enemy must have been waiting for us to come into view, as we were shelled, mortared and machine-gunned constantly. There were plenty of slit trenches to take cover in, but not before we'd taken numerous casualties. The men I saw hit were CSM Jim Oliver, MM. He was an old regular soldier who'd served in India with our 2nd Battalion before the war. The company runner, who was a reinforcement from Devon, and a lad from the signal platoon. When there was a lull in the fighting, we buried them where they'd been killed. Listen, that's the end of the passage, just one element of the bigger battle, but such actions were being similarly played out right across the battlefront as brave men did what had been asked of them. Apparently, the Battle of Wadi Akrit was one of the most successful fought by the 8th Army, with the enemy defences broken through in 24 hours. Although Allied casualties were high, with several hundred dead or wounded, there were also several medals won. Dad wrote a nice conclusion to this battle in his book. We now rested. Guards posted forward, and it was soon dark. Then we slept where we were on the ground, our heads on our packs. This sad day was over and it was said that the Battle of Wadi Akrit was one of the most successful fought by the 8th Army. Our company commander won the MC. Listener, there's a little prelude to all this, because amazingly, only three weeks earlier, Bill Vickers had won the military medal during further fighting during an associated Battle of Mereth, and here's the description of the action that led to it, taken from Singe, Story of the Green Howards. 
There's a link in the show notes. Private F.W. Vickers, a number one Bren gunner of B Company, behaved with great gallantry and was awarded the Military Medal. Most of his section had been wounded by a mortar bomb and the enemy fire was intense. Private Vickers, on his own initiative, worked his way around the flank of a strong machine gun post and charged it by himself, killing or wounding most of the crew and capturing one prisoner. By this action, the remainder of his platoon were enabled to capture the position. His courage and dash proved a great inspiration to his comrades. Listener, so that's just another example of the breed of lad who was fighting this war for us, prepared to put their own lives in danger in order to help their comrades. I know I keep saying this, but forgive me for saying it just once more. How good is that? There's a very poignant PS about all this coming up at the end of the show, so try to stay listening to the end. So that's the end of the storytelling. Well, kind of. And I want to share with you an email I've had which fits nicely into the My Relative Was In The War category. It says, Hi Paul, I just wanted to say how much I'm enjoying your podcasts. There's such an insight into the history of our old heroes. I've just listened to the Rear Gunner episode from the Lancaster Boys. What a job that was. My own granddad was in World War II serving with the Royal Engineers and he saw service at El Alamein and Italy, amongst others, and was also awarded a DSM for taking an Allied tank back from behind enemy lines that the Germans had previously taken. Grandad was Albert Nickel, a Geordie, but everyone called him Nick. He drove the big six-wheelers called Scammels. Like many others, he didn't particularly enjoy talking about what he'd seen, It wasn't until my grandparents had both passed that I'd learnt he'd lost a lot of friends. He himself ended up as a flight engineer at Boscombe Down Airfield in Wiltshire until he retired. Anyhow, I just wanted to drop you a line. Keep up the good work. Yours sincerely, Tom Collins. Tom, thanks so much for this contribution. I really appreciate you writing in. Man, I would just love to learn more about your granddad's DSM exploits in recovering that tank from behind enemy lines. There must be a citation somewhere with more details. So if you, listener, can shed any more light on this, please do get in touch. There's a free copy of Dad's book to the first person who can produce a copy of the citation. That's Albert Nickel of the Royal Engineers. N-I-C-H-O-L Thank you. Next episode. The Zilkin Letters. I'm not going to tell you what these are. You'll have to listen to the show to find out. But I promise you won't be disappointed. There are going to be some great revelations about the Second World War. And if they were known today, their press would be all over it. For security reasons, there are no known photos of Fred Zilkin but I've managed to get hold of a very mysterious-looking sketch of him, which I've posted on the website and your local show notes. I don't say any more, because as Wilf Shaw once admitted in a previous show, I'm still afraid of the long arm of the law. So, that's the Zilkin letters. In the next show, I'll leave it at that. If you want to hear Fred's revelations and the story behind the sketch of him, listen in on episode 26, 
the Zilkin letters. I'd just like to, before I round up, say thank you very much to Mike Smith for all his efforts and patience in sending me various bits and pieces, photographs and stories about Rufty Hill. It's been great, Mike. Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to the Fighting Through podcast, episode 25, Rufty Hill Meets Winston. So please do hear me next time. The PS is coming up, but for now... I'm Paul Cheel saying bye-bye now. P.S. Do you know, listener, what a small world this is. Earlier on, Dad was talking about the Battle of Wadi Akrit and how his company commander won a medal. Now, it was only in a previous episode of this show that I was talking to Wilf Shaw and having a light-hearted joke at the expense of Brigadier Cook Cullis. And I now feel really guilty for having done that because I've just been reading Singe's story of the Green Howards on this battle and I now realise that the commander that Dad spoke so proudly of was none other than Brigadier Cook Collis. Can you believe that? The brief background to the uh, humour that uh, I was mentioning about Wilf is that uh, Brigadier Cook Collis's nickname was Red Ted and everybody knew it including him and then one day he'd asked one of the a private or somebody what his nickname was and the private said it was Horseface and <laughs> the guy was uh, you know court-martialed or something not sh- not far short of it um, so that was that was the joke basically if you want to know more listen to episode 23 so in a humble attempt to set the record straight, I'm going to read to you about Cutcullis from Singe, talking about the battles of Mareth and Akarit. This is from page 196 of Singe, and I'm going to read it direct from the page, so if you hear paper rattling, you know what it is. Listener, I'm going to dot around a little bit, uh, and I will apologise if there's any hesitation or rustling, but... It's a lot easier just to read this straight from the book than fiddle around trying to scan it and photocopy it and whatever. Um, Here goes what it says about uh, the book. The Battle of Acheris was one of the most successful fought by the 8th Army. The enemy's defences had been broken through in 24 hours and the 69th Brigade was entitled to a major share of the credit for this feat. Between them, the two Greenhoward battalions and the East Yorkshires captured or killed practically the whole of the Italian Spezia division, as well as taking all their weapons. The casualties had, however, been very heavy. The 6th Battalion lost Captain Wheeler and Lieutenants Diamond and Pratt. Killed. Lieutenants McAdam, Whitworth, Redfern, Levine and Priestley wounded and over 127 casualties among the other ranks including RSM Carter and CSM Oliver killed and Sergeant Moffat wounded. The 7th Battalion lost Lieutenant Colonel Seagram that's the chap who got a VC posthumously he died of wounds. Captain Howard, Lieutenants Richley, Nosotti and Underhay wounded, and more than a hundred casualties among the other ranks. So that tells you, listener, about how gruesome this battle was. Um, and here we go, 
coming now to Brigadier Cook Collis. No account of these two battles would be complete without a reference to Brigadier Cook Collis, who was awarded a bar to his DSO. Not only did he plan a series of brilliant operations, but he took a personal part in many of the reconnaissances and was always to be found in the forward positions at times when the commanders on the spot were most in need of his advice and encouragement. From colonel to private, all who served under him bear witness to the great inspiration which they received whenever Red Ted appeared amongst them. Listener, let there not be any doubt about the uh, Brigadier's nickname. It was indeed Red Ted, and it seems to me he was known with some fondness. The book continues uh, talking about the battles of Mareth and Dacarit, and uh, in these two battles, within three weeks of each other, the Green Howards added to their roll of honour one Victoria Cross, one bar to a distinguished service order, one bar to a military cross, eight military crosses, four distinguished conduct medals, one bar to a military medal, and 15 military medals. Their losses in the same period had been very heavy, and it's no wonder they were now given a week's rest in which to reorganise. Although reinforcements arrived, both battalions were feeling an acute shortage of NCOs. On the 25th of April, they set out for Tripoli and began the long trek back of nearly 2,000 miles to Alexandria, where they were after a short rest to start reorganising and training for their next adventure, the invasion of Sicily. I have to say, listener, um, Cook Collis features a lot in Singe's coverage of these battles, so we shouldn't be too surprised that he got a medal, which was a bar to his distinguished service order. Wilf's story about him is still funny, albeit a bit irreverent, but I guess it always was so with soldiers and their officers, but I do hope I've set the record straight. If you'd like to hear more background on all of this, take a listen to episode 23 of the show, A Third Coffee with Wilf Shaw. PPS This is a wonderful yet very sad epilogue to the show. It was the last memory imparted by Bill Vickers when he spoke to Barry Barnes, author of Operation Scipio. Before the Battle of Wadi Akarit, five of my mates and me were sat talking, and the topic came up about what we'd do when the war was over and we got back home. One said he'd open a newsagent's and general store. Another said he hoped to get a lorry and go into the haulage business. The next one said he wanted to buy a minibus and run bus trips. The next one hoped to get his job back at the steelworks. The last one said he'd look for a job in the building trade, because with all the houses destroyed and damaged in the air raids, there'd be work for years. Then I was asked, what are you going to do when you get home, Bill? My answer was, I'm going to wait until I get home. I knew we had a lot more battles to fight, and I was right. Fate decreed that of the six of us, I was the only one to get home. Two were killed at Mareth, two killed in Sicily, and lastly my best mate Rufty Hill, one of the first killed on the beach on D-Day. None of them were married or had children. Fate decreed my wife Gladys and I should have six children, three boys and three girls, 
one each for my mates and one for me. Listener, I do wonder if three of those lads were in the photo we've just talked about, but I suspect we'll never know. credit card bill.